If the doors of perception were cleansed, everything would appear to man as it is infinite. Sounds like it could inspire a book, like Alduis Huxley's The Doors of Perception. And that would go on to inspire a band from the mid-1960s to choose their name and their musical quest to change the world. We're talking about The Doors. From Venice Beach, California, ladies and gentlemen, Jim and Ray and Robbie and John, The Doors. I find it very interesting with this band how people either really like them or really don't like them, but I feel like (laughs) the people that really don't like them don't get them or they're uncomfortable with Jim's persona. Was that a consultant's assessment uh, for the uh, (laughs) 1970s of the Doors catalog? Because honestly, they were a polarizing band. They had that effect then when they were active until Morrison's death. They had that effect afterwards And I think it's part of the reason that every so often a group of 16-year-olds get a hold of the music of the Doors and reignite the fire. It started for me, first time I saw it, was in the 80s. And then I look for a commonality a few years later, and again, yep, that 15, 16, 17, predominantly male, but not always, a wave of people coming to the Doors in their music. And that inspired a lot of later releases, including the Double Best of the Doors album. It led to a reignition of the fire on a larger scale as Doors sales overall grew at a time when they weren't doing anything. You lost little girl It would lead to higher visibility for the surviving members and them doing things and maybe uh, working with the projects that were coming out, including Live in New York, a compendium box set of their 1970 performances at the Felt Forum in the bowels of Madison Square Garden, one of the most amazing live box sets. And it's a lot of the same songs uh, in different performances over the course of a few days. And uh, that's a whole nother episode we could talk about just that box set and and go on for days oh yeah you know you mentioned how you see it in the future in the 80s and the 90s some 16 year old kid who's going to be a musician gets a hold of this album it completely changes their world but also looking back to an older episode that we discussed Iggy Pop saw Jim Morrison and was fucking blown away by him because he was the first musician that he had ever seen that told the crowd, fuck you. I fucking dare you to come up here and kick my ass, you wussies. I'll kick your asses. And he taunted the crowd at the same time telling them how much he loved them and the way he was able to pull this off. Holy cow. Jim liked to ride right on the edge, 
And sometimes the edge was with the audience on that side, and sometimes it was the law and authorities. And he had his legendary run-ins with the authorities where he uh, ended up in cuffs off the stage on your way to jail. Mr. Morrison, please don't ever come back here. I don't think it was completely misunderstood by the band. They knew what was going on, and they knew what kind of character Jim was. And it's kind of where they went, and it didn't seem to impinge upon them until later we found out that there were some hard feelings being built up about some of the things that happen because of behavior, mm-hmm. especially in uh, New Haven and Miami, of course. Mm-hmm. I mean, think about it. These guys went along. They knew what they were getting into. In yeah. a lot of ways, they had the same philo- philosophy as as Jim. You can make the case that there was no saying that you didn't know what you were into going back to when they were the house band at the Whiskey A Go-Go. Before Even the, before that. Before they got signed with Electra Records, they got discovered off their house band status at the Whiskey A Go-Go on the Strip in Hollywood, right? So they're in there, and they're playing, and they're knocking this shit out of it, knocking the ball out of the park every night. They've got people there. They've got talent scouts, A&R agents, everybody coming to see them there. In the meantime, they're working on this little AM radio ditty called The End. And when they knew, when Jim knew that they were going to sign to Electra Records, he decided he was going to debut The End at Whiskey A Go-Go. And we all know that the song The End crossed a lot of lines. <laughs> back and forth, jumping back and forth. La, 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 we're crossing lines. And But the thing was, it was a masterful piece of rock music. They decided to debut it on what was their final night at the Whiskey, the end, in all its glory. And that's why the guys knew there was going to be some purposeful or accidental hijinks and shenanigans. Let's just call it that. Absolutely. And we'll talk about some of the... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, let's call it. (laughs) That's a very mild, kind way of putting it. A very toned down, safe way of putting it. As Eric Bloom reminded us, these were the Purple Haze 1960s kids, you know, and it's true, they were successful right away. They, they had a song on their first record set like my fire that I mean they did the radio edit that we always talk about did they or didn't they or what was what was the effect and the radio edit got them on all the AMs immediately and the FMs all went for the long version and it was uh, you know the ones that existed and there was only a handful of them so as things turned and as the doors developed and continued through their their from 67 on through to 70 71 they became the darlings of both as am continued to try to be relevant and play the cool hip music and as fm became in vogue they were the darlings of both and at the same time didn't give a damn about it no they they were having a blast doing what they were doing pushing all the boundaries and writing their music and when they went in to record that first album they had enough to record their first two albums because they had crafted their their sound at Whiskey A Go-Go and then before that at that little, I think, strip club that they were doing a residence at before somebody that noticed them brought them over to the whiskey. You have to start somewhere. But the fact that they did it that way was so different than how so many other bands did it, and it explains the sound in a lot of way it's so groovy and they developed it fully free with without constraints 
by doing their live show the way they did. You just connected a line in my mind to the Beatles in Berlin, right? You're playing multiple shows, multiple sets, you're churning them out. So all of a sudden you're churning out the same way once you're really playing everywhere and playing as a band, right? Mm-hmm. So they make the first record and they're already, like you said, a step ahead. And that's why Strange Days came almost right behind it. They did eight albums in their five years of existence. It's incredible, the output. And, the and fact every that, one of them gold. Ah, gold, every one of them. And, and so such amazing music. On every album, there are songs that stick in the Doors catalog that everybody knows and loves. And then there's another layer. It's all the songs that only the people who really listen to the albums know and love. And then there's songs below that that only a certain percentage of those fans get. Yep. But everybody finds their, their contact points. And I think that's why it works for younger music fans discovering them every time there's a bunch of kids turning 16, 17, 18, which is always, but you know what I'm saying. Oh, absolutely. And that's one of the reasons why I think they continue to be so popular and so relevant to kids and young adults and old farts like me. <laughs> I'm old, but I ain't no fart. They're the kind of band that helps you hold on to your youth in a lot of ways, and that's important. Hello, I love you can do that. So can break on through. I mean, they talk about that in one of the uh, albums, and it's basically a free yourself, get your get your ass out of your shell, and be you. How do you stand on the uh, she gets high versus the she gets version? She gets high should be it. It has to be the original and natural. That's how it was written. I don't understand. Every time I get a collection or I find it, even when they. On that live in New York thing that I was making reference to, the box set, Jim's singing it, and she just says, she gets, and I wonder if it was a reaction to that becoming the way that it was heard out there. I know, when I was working at MGK, we found and started playing the she gets high part, and nobody said a word, nobody cared. But I thought, why wasn't that just released? <laughs> but well, I digress. <laughs> Ed Sullivan answers that. Oh, yeah. Boy, did they. People like oh, him. Oh, boy, did they get in trouble. Well, we talk about your mom. And, you know, uh, my mom, she was a, a teenager in the Ed Sullivan 50s. And she was also in the right age group to have uh, succumbed to the reefer madness movie and the disinformation campaign in it you government men have got to find some way to put an end to it but do you realize that marijuana is not like other forms of dope you see it grows wild in almost every state in the union and uh all i could tell you is that she didn't like it one bit either you kids and your marijuana but back to the doors man you know look at what comes man waiting for the sun the soft parade yes we're talking about albums that are part of our culture. That's so true. And probably will be for a long time, maybe even long after the first and second wave of fans are gone. Think of some of the bands that were obviously influenced by The Doors, your Joy Divisions, your uh, Echo and the Bunnymen, The Cult, or just a few. And you Hell, hear... Ian was even in The Doors for a yes, while. Yes, exactly. So... <laughs> 
And at one point after Jim died, they had asked Iggy Pop to join the Doors, and Iggy mm. couldn't because he was in the institu- he was institutionalized at that time. Wow, I did not know that. That was right about the time he was going in to the institution, and I heard uh, either Iggy or Ray Manzarek talk about that on some sort of video clip, and it was like, "What the fuck?" This, Iggy, Iggy would have been good, though. Wait a minute, but this is our imbalance history. It was kind of a clip. It was either Iggy or Ray. But that look, we find out stuff, and it sticks in our brains, and it doesn't always come out. Like, yeah. you know, well, then the next thing that happened was yeah. Elvis met Colonel Tom Parker. You know what I mean? We just, <laughs> it just doesn't come out of us that way. So I'm sorry. I apologize. And sorry to Marcus's mom if, uh, yeah. if, if if she's sitting there, you know, with her Shaking head Shaking her explode. head, going, oi, vey, That's us. Yeah, so, but he could have done it he could have replaced jim because he had the type of character that could have pulled it off when the doors hit nobody saw it coming except for the people maybe in la that knew who they were right they hit and they have what eight straight gold albums no band from the u.s had ever done that not the beach boys or anybody else would come on eight straight gold albums out of the shoot has anybody done that since i don't know we have to do that research <laughs> project to find out hello research department oh wait a minute you're right here okay we'll get on that <laughs> wait a minute i just want to ask you are we sitting three and a half feet apart from each other yes we are okay just wanted to make sure we're going we're down with the cdc on that the achievement of the doors because jim is part of the 27 club is part of the eternal what if what comes next where do we go next i always like the um the updates of dead rock icons t- uh, t-shirt commercials i forget it was haynes or one of them had the commercials and what they did was they would put someone like jim morrison or Jimi hendrix who had passed away and what they would look like now in one of their t-shirts you ever see those print ads? i have not but now they're i'm gonna have to like, check them out from like 20 years ago right 25 and they showed jim and he was Kind of like my body shape, which is great with the beard, and you know, part of it was gray and all that kind of stuff. But I would love to li- have him live so we could see him all gray and fat. You know what I'm saying? Yes. I think he was done after L.A. Woman. I don't think he would have ever performed again. I think he would have become a full on poet and writer and just disappeared with Pam, which is what he wanted to do. I think he got tired of the excess. Well, Pam was a co enabler. Because she had her drug problem, which was also an issue, Not, I mean, for everybody involved, because people didn't want them to, to die. And eventually they both succumbed to their drug problem, because that's the best we can figure. The stories that surround Jim Morrison's death, well, I'm sure that Disgraceland will cover them at some point if they haven't already done that, but it's not really what we're here to do. But it does happen, and uh, we lose Jim Morrison uh, July in 1971. Do you remember that? Yeah. Uh, you got to remember, we were still kind of reeling um, from the death of, uh, of and Jimmy and Janice. And then Jim. Was, That's a massive triumvirate of loss. And then to lose Jim Morrison, who in our mind was fully running functionally vital and everything because la woman was still a fresh album on everybody's turntable mm-hmm. the song still pumping out new track after new track coming out uh, in fact uh, towards the end jim and john densmore reconnected and it's kind of chilling because i went back and looked at densmore's book riders on the storm and i, I want to share something with you a letter that he wrote to jim after visiting his grave. In those days, you had to primarily talk to somebody on the phone. 
few days before Morrison dies, he talks to John Densmore. The only way to get in touch with each other then was call each other on the phones. And, and they it, talked for a while, right? It was expensive to call overseas. They yeah. Really expensive. From California to Paris. So they were talking and Jim was, he seemed good. And he was asking about how L.A. Woman was doing and things like that. And if the guys were going to do the project that he suggested they take underway. Uh, an album without him. Basically, just instrumental stuff. And they were. They had been working on it. He had no idea that he was having his last conversation with Jim and that he would be dead a few days later and had no reason to think that. And he said that he actually sounded good. He didn't sound drunk or drugged or anything. And it was in evening time over in Paris. That's why he's one of the ones that just couldn't go to the funeral. So a few years after uh, Jim's passing, he goes with Danny Sugarman, who was uh, a publicist for the band and a friend. And their local guide from France, he takes them to the cemetery where Jim's buried. And they stand around the grave and talk about that, about how it seemed like small for Morrison. And they talked about the graffiti along the way, pointing the way. When Densmore went back to his hotel, he sat down and wrote a letter to his friend. And he wrote, finally visited your grave. I can't speak for the others, but I suppose I didn't come to your funeral because I was so mad and disappointed in you the last few years the band was together. He pointed fingers at Pam, who later succumbed to her addiction. He pointed at addiction itself, and he shouted out in words as if it was Jim lying there in the ground above a Père Lachaise, buried near Oscar Wilde, Edith Piaf, Balzac, and Chopin. As if he was there, the letter just poured his heart out about all of that. And it's one of the high points. It's early in the book, but it's a really high point in Densmore's view of the whole thing. Because it sets that aside immediately so you can talk about the rest of the story. And the rest of the story is really what it's about. It's the music, and it was amazing. I can't imagine what it must have been like to be on the inside of that crazy ride from the late 60s through to the 70s. The studio time had to have been just marvelous, seriously magical. Some of the things that they did in the studio and the way they took rock and roll and made it their own sound and made it so different than everybody else's. One of the themes that we have is about game changers, and maybe that's where we should pick things up when we come back after a tasty brew on the imbalanced history of rock and roll. You know, Marcus, with life on hold, our friends at Crooked Eye Brewery want everyone to stay safe so that we can all get through this. And I know you're uh, washing your hands a lot, right? I am definitely keeping as clean as I can be, washing my hands, using safe distancing, and... Ray, you know, they also want you to know over at Crooked Eye that you can bring your growler to the brewery on Montgomery Avenue in Hatboro for a refill. Yes, as long as this thing goes on and they have beer, you can do that. Yeah, the boys have been busy, right? They have been very, very busy. Hey, Marcus, I learned something about our buddies at Crooked Eye during the last week or so. What's that? We always thank Paul and Paul and the gang there at the brewery, but I found out that a lot of people call Paul Moheran Pete. What? So do we thank Paul and Pete and Jeff for their continued support and keeping things going there at the brewery? I think we do, and we want you to keep up on the latest developments at Crooked Eye on their social media sites as well as at crookedeyebrewery.com. You know, that's where I learned the Pete thing was on their social media. So, see, you do learn stuff. And soon they'll be pouring at Jamie's House of Music in Lansdowne, PA, 
I saw a picture of the bar. It's looking good. They'll be down near you, Marcus. Yeah, that's just a hop, skip, and a jump from where we live, so I will definitely be grabbing some Crooked Eye over in Lansdowne for sure. But first, folks, if you're going to go out, make sure you wash your hands and keep your distance. And let's shut this virus down. It's cutting into my drinking time. <laughs> Pantheon Podcast listeners, Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. We're back on the imbalanced history of rock and roll, talking about the doors of perception, basically, right? Very much so, the doors of perception. But I don't think people would have bought an album from a band called The Doors no. of Perception. <laughs> they would have had a much different view of the band coming in. But The Doors created their own imagery and then let everybody in on it, which got people interested in Blake and Huxley and other things. Made them realize that they were more than just some pretty boys making pretty music for them. They were thinkers. Jim was a poet. He shared the vision of his three musical buddies they worked together as one they pushed the studio process because what they wanted to do and what they were doing was way beyond what most bands were doing in american studios at that time that's a perfect way to describe it because they could do a two two and a half minute song that they could do an 11 minute song they could they had a, a hit with like my fire what's seven that minutes. seven and a half minutes yeah. right the full version my good They eradicated a lot of those boundaries because AM wanted them, needed them to be hip because they were the hot band, the hip band, the now band. Live performance 
became kind of a jam thing too. Some of the songs that are shorter on albums would have a little bit more in the middle. Um, a Grateful the, Dead digression, but at not. a time when the Grateful Dead were doing their thing at the same time, like it's all happening in kind of like a it was. I don't That's even the blues in them, kind of. Too. Yeah. Oh, definitely, definitely a heavy inf- influence in the blues and heavy influence on Jim uh, of the American experience. And I mean, the Americans who were here before we were Native uh, our Native American brothers and sisters. And he felt that. He felt a lot of that. And a lot of that's in the music, especially uh, on some of the songs on uh, Morrison Hotel. And we'll get to that a little bit. They they gave us such imagery in the music. And it started even in some of the top 40 length type songs. They said what they said, whether it was three minutes or, or 12. And what they said in the end, like we talked about in the first half of today's episode, got them fired from the Whiskey A Go-Go, but it also made them a bit of a, a sensation out in that teenage, young young adult America out there where they were hungry for new music that was American-made and their own and expressed how they felt and maybe made them feel something they didn't think about feeling before. And The Doors did a lot of that. On every album, The Doors, Strange Days, which kind of like was a, t- a stub of the toe. But as, as you mentioned earlier, a lot of those songs were the, the songs that weren't making the cut on the first record. And yep. that's the way you approach making albums in those days. Yep. But they were also doing their live show for so long and they, they prided themselves on their original music. So they kept writing songs and writing songs and developing them and working them and perfecting them while they were playing live at the strip bar and then at the uh, uh, Whiskey A Go-Go. But after that, they were doing it on the road and in the studio and having the time to craft stuff, not having to push and rush and crimp and save. They were able to do it the way they wanted to do it because they had established that. Especially by the time they get to 1968's Waiting for the Sun and the Soft Parade in 1969, which was a landmark album for them and a game changer, despite some of its mixed commercial response initially. It goes on to be one of the classics. Now, why did that one not receive the commercial success? When you're as hot as they are, as hot like that, why does an album like that not have that type of success? I think it was the changing nature of the band. That they had begun to evolve from what they were at the beginning in 66 and 67 and with the first few records, they started to find their way. So they had a hit with Touch Me, but it was about, you know, asking a person that you're hot for or wanting to touch you. It was a very direct uh, request. And it was a great song, Sax Break the Whole Nine Yards, right? I don't know. That was like the big hit. And some of the other stuff maybe was a little bit more exploratory. Uh, Shaman's Blues. Jim had become obsessed with shamans and felt that he was part shaman somewhere in his spirit child, you know, and then the long and then the long runner is the title track, the soft parade, which creates that long form legend format, if you want to call it that. But I would think that this would be the type of album that like an AOR station would be all over on a regular basis because of the fact that it had the elements of rock and roll as well as the elements of exploration. What you find on their next album, Morrison Hotel, which is out in February of 1970, 
is pretty much what you're talking about right there. It's it's a combination of those elements uh, where it's feeding both the creative side and the commercial side, but without having to give up any of your artistic integrity on it. I mean, what gets better for rock radio in, at the turn of the decade than Roadhouse Blues? It paints the imagery of Jim's life, right? I woke up this morning and I got myself a beer. He's just writing about life, man. <laughs> yep. But there was so many great songs on there, you know, and I started thinking about it when we were talking about doing the uh, the episode, you know, stuff like that, and even Waiting for the Sun, you know, more of a straightforward rocker. The, the, the other songs, they all kind of run together. You Make Me Real and Peace Frog and Blue Sunday. <sighs> Ship of Fools, and then you know Indian Summer on the other side, talking about his uh, his his experience and his his appreciation for the Native Americans. But all of it, you know, even though it doesn't all have uh, uh, hits from top to bottom, is a record that really made a mark for them and put them on another level and put them on a different pedestal with a new generation of Doors fans. You're right. I mean, that opening blast from Roadhouse Blues, everybody knows it. It's like that opening riff from Back in Black. It's like it's that kind of a song that everybody just knows it. And Peace Frog is one of those deeper cuts that still maintains a strong presence on rock and roll stations, classic rock stations, stations that will go into the doors. As an album as a whole, it's the one that made me a hardcore Doors fan. My stuff, my beat up old copy of it, right? The next album they put out is absolutely live. You can hear Jim talking about getting arrested in Miami like the last time. You know, it's a live album, but it does pretty well for them. I, I wouldn't say that it was like the greatest thing they ever had happen, but it kept them going. And and then after that, instead of a new album, the fans got a compilation album. And then the long wait for L.A. Woman. A masterpiece. The way they made this record, the way they put it together, the way that it's lasted at such a high level of love through the generations is pretty astounding. The irony was... It would be their last album, really. And I think they knew it going into it. I think deep down in, they knew. I think they knew he was getting restless. He had talked about leaving it all, ditching it all many times. I see your hair is burning. Hills are filled with fire. If they say I never loved you, you know they are Look at the pace they went at during those years. They went at a ferocious pace, way harder than most bands. We talked about Led Zeppelin and the pace that they would work at from basically inception as the New Yardbirds um, through to when they go to Headley Grange to do Led Zeppelin four. And it's not dissimilar to what the Doors were doing between touring and making records, doing something pretty much all the time uh, in, in for the Doors, just riding the wave. And then they get to this album, and the reaction's immediate. Uh, you've got great 
you know, uh, top 40 fodder, if you want to call it that, and Riders on the Storm, and again, with an edit. Then you have long players like L.A. Woman, or a song like Changeling, or Lover Madly becomes a huge hit. Uh, and, and, and in that conversation that Densmore had with Morrison, he told him how well that Love Her Madly was doing, and Jim was like, wow, that's great. Like, he was really positive at some point about it. Riders on the storm Riders on the storm But something changed, something happened, and as often happens when it comes to use of heroin specifically or any drug that's that powerful, bad things can happen, and they do. They, do. they just do. I don't know how much of a heroin user he was. I don't know if he had a problem with it the way Pam seemed to have a problem with it as far as addiction goes. We know that he was a heavy drinker. He loved his hallucinogens. Uh, According to Disgraceland, he was also a cutter, and Rick James saved his life in Stephen Stills' house one day when he was cutting himself all wasted. Really? I never heard that story before. Where'd you get that from? Disgraceland talking about Rick James. So now, okay, and we're using so, another podcast as a source. That's okay. Look, yeah, I was. Hey, man, he's good. He's good. And so, and a lot of his stuff he gets from reading the books. It's interesting, and I don't know how accurate that is. So I'm going to research this. And Jim was fried. Jim was intense. And by the time they did L.A. Woman, as an artist, he needed some downtime to recharge. And and that's why he went to Paris. But it also explains his uh, his crazy behavior with his drinking and his partying. The intensity also explains why he wasn't afraid to challenge the crowd, too. He told the guys, go make a record without me. Eventually, it came out. It was called Other Voices, and they did another one called Full Circle, and neither one of them were very successful. Uh, they People wanted the doors. And the proof of that, in my mind, was when they did the reunion with Ian Asbury from the cult in the vocal chair, and I thought there's no better person, yet people still gave him crap about it. He did an incredible job, as best as anyone probably could on this blue marble, to bring back the spirit of it. And what I saw that night at the Tower Theater was just unbelievable. It's one of those shows I never thought I'd see that made me go, what? Because it's as close as you're ever going to get. Did you have any opportunities to see The Doors back in those days? No, but I know people who saw them at the original Electric Factory in Philadelphia for like $2. Were were they notoriously good live then? Like, were they known for being a really great live band back then? I don't know about the very beginning, but I know in the Live in New York box set, they are blistering. songs have various levels of how you play them and how good they are and you can hear that between the performances there's like six of them and uh maybe you can access that online and you'll get an idea of where they were in 1970 which is when things were still going pretty good but think about that six shows i think it was six shows in four days or something oh like that at, at basically at the garden oh my god but uh before we go though before we go any further I want to go back to L.A. Woman for one of the greatest AOR turntable hits of all time. It's on side two. I want to tell you about Texas Radio and the Big Beat. Before you get to the end, I'm talking about the Wasp, Texas Radio and the Big Beat. Comes out of 
Virginia swamps, cool and slow with money and precision. The back narrow and hard. It's just one of the great rock songs. The energy in that song, and, and as much in that song as, as anything else on the album, really made me all the more shocked as a young rock fan, as a teenager, that Jim Morrison had died because this voice that I, I heard on this album was out of this world. Amazing, right? How could he be dead? He's 27 years old. We had no idea what we didn't know then. And what we found out through the years doesn't make it feel a whole lot better. And that's why we're here talking about the doors all these decades later on the imbalanced history of rock and roll. What a great band. Boy, and you hear him in uh, Jane's Addiction as well. So many bands, you can hear the influence of the Sonic influence, for sure. And not only that, but like even Perry Farrell was totally influenced by Jim Morrison. Ian Asbury, you can see some of that when he played live with the cult. I've been fortunate enough to see the cult many times live, thank goodness. Jane's Addiction as well. And I can, and they definitely tried to push the crowd. The things that they did, I can only imagine Jim doing perfectly. The way they describe him is somebody who could tell you he loved you and he hated you in the same sentence, and you're just like, oh. but you feel the range of emotions is pretty powerful. It is. I mean, his charisma that it was special. You know the part? You know what? That may be how the band members felt about him by the end of things. (laughs) Because, you you know, I read from Densmore's letter to him, and he's talking about the last few years that we were together in the band. There was acrimony, and yet it created some of the most amazing creative music in the last few years the, the band was together. And a few years later, I mean, we always knew that Morrison was a poet. You could hear it in the music that you'd hear anytime you listened to The Doors. In 1978, they released an album called An American Prayer, and it was basically the poetry readings of Jim Morrison. Just a lot of Jim talking, and the way Jim would talk was pretty mesmerizing because of the way he read and presented prose. Do you know the warm progress under the stars? Do you know we exist? Have you forgotten the keys to the kingdom? Have you been born yet, and are you alive? Let's reinvent the gods, all the myths of the ages. Celebrate symbols from deep elder forests. Have you forgotten the lessons of the ancient war? We need great golden copulations. It was pretty astounding to listen to. I still have my copy. I don't say I that I listen to it vinyl. all the time. I don't listen. Yeah, me too. I don't say that I listen to it all the time, but I have it, and I can when I want to. I definitely can listen to it whenever I want. His voice also, think about it. You have permission. Mom said it's okay. You're ungrounded. Hey, Mom, can I unground to myself? (laughs) Um, But his voice was also hypnotic. That Just the voice itself, he had that thing with his voice, too, that depth that was Mm -hmm. not only a lower-sounding voice, but it had a depth to it. Yes. And so it was almost like he had a 3D voice. What have they done to the earth? What have they done to our fair sister? Ravaged and plundered and ripped her and bit her. Stuck her with knives in the side of the dawn and... Tied her with fences and dragged her down. I hear a very gentle sound. 
You know, we kind of talked about um, when Ian Asbury went on tour with the with the Doors, and it was good to see that. And through the years, that's probably the biggest incarnation of the band members doing cool stuff. They wrote books, they did tours, they had musical projects, they played with other people. All the things that musicians who don't really have to work do when they feel like doing work. Well, Ray Manzarek produced the band X. Oh, yeah, he was a big fan of them right from the beginning, right? Yeah, he and his wife were sitting in the crowd watching them play, and he was uh, just kind of looking down, thinking about something, and his wife elbowed him and said, they're doing your song. And he goes, what? She elbowed him again. She goes, they're doing your song. Which and it one was, was Soul it? Kitchen. Oh. And they do a great punk rock version of Soul Kitchen, by the way. L.A. bands, man. L.A. bands. They got their thing, too. Yeah. You know, it's not as, it's not as fractured in, you know, camp-oriented, as you might think, out there in Los Angeles. And John Doe refers to Jim Morrison as the first punk rocker and the first punk rock band because of the way he was with the crowd. We talked about that Yep, in the explosion of punk. We did. So. And uh, that's a great episode to check out if you want to find out more about punk in L.A. and everywhere else, by the way. Yeah. By the way, our website is imbalancedhistory.com, and you can always find any episode of this podcast there or on the Pantheon Podcast Network. We love those guys. Thank you very much, Pantheon, for adding us to your network. And, of course, you can find us on Facebook, The Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. We're on Twitter, at Imbalanced Histo. You can email us with any comments, any suggestions, any feedback, imbalancedhistory at gmail.com. Well, I'm just going to kick back with a uh, frosty mug of crooked eye and sit here on the porch and watch another generation of 16-year-olds fall in love with this band that started in L.A. and spread to all parts of the world. I hope we get some cool music out of these young whippersnappers who listen to the doors and find them for the first time as well. Well, let's get together next time here in the Dark Doc Studios. I'm Ray Coop. I'm Marcus in the Darkest. Time to go on the imbalance history of rock and roll. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.